you'd like to take your Bibles, turn to the book of Revelation. We're going to pick up a, a statement or two in chapter 12 and then move into chapter 13. The, uh, the key figure, key f- human figure in the tribulation period is, is the one known as the Antichrist. That man, whoever he is, there is no way to tell. Until he arrives, people do. People try and do all the funny little things with six six six, and and uh, don't do that because until he's actually here and identifiable, you can make almost any name match that. He he does something that we're going to see in in chapter thirteen. Seems to imply that he succeeds where Jesus failed, which is a shocking thing to, to say. My good friend, my brother Demetrius, his, his, uh, his, his hairline just rose up about four inches. I'm, su- I'm surprised that your eyebrows didn't just snap up there. You'll see it as we, as we go through. Uh, to begin with, in, in chapter 12, of course, we see this, this uh, dragon who is Satan pursuing the woman who is the elect of God, Israel, at one time, and then the church, and we see the male child who is, who is Christ. We see Satan's failures. Bear with me. If I don't put my phone on airplane mode, someone will call it. will stop recording like it did a couple weeks ago, so we're good. Chapter, chapter 12 really records some significant failures on Satan's part. He pursues Israel. He pursues the elect of God. He pursues the church, and he fails. He fails to destroy her. She is protected by God on several occasions. He seeks to destroy the Lord Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. Chapter 12 has him right there as Mary is giving birth as the child is coming forth, and he fails. He fails when Herod sends out the soldiers to kill all those infant boys in and around Bethlehem. He fails in Jesus' temptation. He fails each time the crowds became enraged and tried to kill Jesus. Uh, I think it's quite possible that Satan thought that when Jesus was crucified that he had won. He knows the Bible, but he doesn't understand it. There's no spiritual wisdom there. But Jesus rose from the dead, so he failed to destroy Israel. He failed to destroy Christ, and he has failed and will continue to fail to destroy the church. In the middle of chapter 12, Satan is actually caught up in a battle with Michael and the angels in heaven, and he and his demons are thrown down in such a way that the earth is actually warned. Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So a wrath that is unlike anything else Satan had ever experienced before. Verse 17 then says, Then the dragon, this is Satan, became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea And immediately in chapter 13, verse 1, John writes, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names 
on its heads. This is the Antichrist. Called the beast here, called the Antichrist elsewhere, called the Antichrist in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, where he is described in significant detail. I invite you to read that at some point. Now we need to understand that Satan, all the way back in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 14, verse 14, makes a number of statements about what he's going to do. And they culminate in, in the vow, I will make myself like the Most High. He's failed on earth to harm Israel, to harm Christ, and to harm the church. And so he stands on the seashore within the vision, the sea might actually be all of humanity, and he calls forth one who is his son. Closest thing to a son that Satan would ever have is the Antichrist. Satan says, I will be like the Most High, and I need a son because the Most High has a son. We even see this, this very strong family resemblance over in chapter 12. In verse 3, the dragon Satan has seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. And the Antichrist is described as having ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems. So it's not a perfect match. It's not exact. But it, there's a strong family resemblance there. These two are closely related we see something of the power of the Antichrist in the verses that follow. And the beast that I saw, verse 2 of 13, the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to the dragon, and to it, the dragon gave his, his power and his throne and great authority. One of his heads seemed to have a, a mortal wound, seemed is an important word there. It may not have been truly mortal. Maybe it was pretense, but he seemed to have a mortal wound, and perhaps he did, and that mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the beast. They worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? So we're given a description of this predatory, savage hunger on the part of the Antichrist. It's fueled by satanic power. And it's infused into a man that no one thinks they can kill. The whole world is going to worship Satan and the Antichrist. Remember, Satan is a deceiver. He won't reveal himself to the world as the devil, the destroyer. He'll reveal himself to the world as God. He'll reveal the Antichrist as the son of God. Now think about the rhetorical question in verse 4. Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? Exodus 15, there is a statement following Israel's deliverance out of the Red Sea when the Egyptian army had been killed. And the Song of Moses includes the line, Who is like the Lord our God? Now the wicked on the earth are asking, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? It's a rhetorical question. It's really a statement. There is no one like the beast and no one can resist him. This is worldwide. So the people of the earth have their champion. During this whole period of time, of course, judgment is unfolding. The earth is suffering because of the judgment of God, the wrath of God coming against the wicked. 
During this time, the two witnesses in Jerusalem are, are preaching and teaching, and they're closing the sky to, to rain so that there's drought and there's famine, and they're causing the waters to become blood, and they're bringing forth various miracles like Moses and Elijah did, and those two may be Moses and Elijah. And the world is in such torment that when those two are finally killed at the end of the three and a half years, the whole world throws a party. They actually exchange gifts. Well, now they have a champion who will defend them. Now they have a god of their own. Now they have a son who will protect them and defend them. What's the purpose for which the Antichrist is sent? Jesus says in in John 6.38, For I have come forth from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Antichrist is a replacement Christ. Anti, by the way, doesn't mean against. It means substitute for. It means a replacement of And instead of Christ, the Antichrist instead of Christ. And so he comes to do the will of his father too. Verse 5, the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. By the way, let me just pause you here. We know that Jesus experienced three Passovers during his ministry. That three Passovers could cover easily a a three-and-a-half-year period of time. And so it's quite possible, even though we don't have an exact period of time for the ministry of Christ, we have to reason it out based on what we have. It's quite possible that even that is part of the counterfeit, that he'll have the same length of ministry. The Antichrist, verse 6, opened its mouth to other blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them, and, all, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb of, who was slain. Why did Satan bring Antichrist into being? Well, to arrogantly blaspheme God in his name and the children of God in heaven. He will be thrown out of heaven, Satan will, before this begins. He's going to land on the earth. And you understand that, that probably even now Satan has access, at least as a, as a visitor, to heaven. It's no longer his home, but he has access. He remains the accuser of the brethren. But three and a half years before Jesus returns, all of that ends, and that door is locked to him. And he comes and he stands on the seashore in, in this feeble rage, burning with hatred, unable to do anything other than curse and revile, powerless to touch the Almighty, powerless to touch the saints in heaven. But then he stops looking at heaven and he looks at the earth and he sees the remnant of saints on the earth. And he sets himself to make war against them to kill the children of God. The world proves its own wicked nature by celebrating this, by worshiping Satan and worshiping the Antichrist every time Christians are rounded up and arrested and brutalized and put to death. Now, right in the middle of the chapter, then, John seems to pause from the vision, and he gives an exhortation, verses 9 and 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. 
Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Who has an ear to hear? Well, Christians have an ear to hear. This is a book given to us. This is a revelation given to us. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, This is a revelation of Jesus Christ given to him by the Father to give to his servants. And so he sent it through angels to his servant John who wrote it down and who distributed it. If you're born again in Jesus Christ, you have ears to hear what this says. And Jesus says here in his revelation that there is no avoiding the suffering that is to come. If anyone is to be taken captive, he will be taken captive. If anyone is to be put to death, he will be put to death. We know that our brothers and sisters at that time are going to be praying for deliverance, but God will not send it. We know that they'll be asking that angels come and open prison doors like they did in Acts, but no angels will come. There will be no secret hiding places. Satan and Antichrist are going to have their moment of success. And so John says, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This is the time to stand. This is the time to endure. This is the time when salvation proves itself through the courage among, uh, that, that arises from people who believe they have no courage. But as they stand, they find that the Lord meets them. Faith from people who believe that they see no reason for faith. We look at our age now, we look at our, at our time now, and, and see the, the sheer nuttiness of our world and the insanity of our world. There was a, a picture just this past week of a man in Australia who calls himself a woman. And because he calls himself a woman, he's competing in a women's weightlifting competition. You can't say that he's a man because he says that he's a woman. Universities are growing in that. My daughter's 20, and I worry about the things that she'll be exposed to. For those of you with with younger kids, for my own grandkids, there's fear there. They have to be prepared, but it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. This is the call for the endurance and faith of the saints to stand our ground, to teach our children, to prepare them. Well, the vision of the Antichrist is not yet complete. Satan seeks to make himself like the Most High God, and he raises up Antichrist as a, as a counterfeit to Jesus. But, of course, God is a trinity. Verse 11 says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. This is the second beast, sometimes called the false prophet. (coughs) So I'll tell you what I think before I read the passage so that you can look. I think the second beast is a counterfeit for the Holy Spirit. Now, the second beast is a man. Satan can't take his whole being spiritually and put it somewhere else. God is triune. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In order for Satan to counterfeit, he has to have something to begin with. Just as the Antichrist is a man, I believe that the, the counterfeit to the Holy Spirit will be a man. Now let's look at it, and you, you just think with me. 
It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Two horns, it's got less significance, less presence than the Antichrist. The Holy Spirit comes at the behest of the Father and the Son. It speaks like a dragon. It speaks with the words of Satan. The Holy Spirit comes to serve, but the Holy Spirit delivers the words of God. The false prophet exercises all the authority of the first beast, not its own authority. As Jesus says, the Spirit will not say things of himself. He will say what he's given to say. He makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. So it prompts worship of Satan and the Antichrist, just as the Holy Spirit prompts worship of God the Father and the Son. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, just as the Holy Spirit persuades and convicts the false prophet will deceive. It tells them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might speak. So it deceives those who dwell on the earth. It prompts Antichrist followers to build a statue in his form. What's the parallel to that? Perhaps the body of Christ. Perhaps a a single living organism that had life breathed into it. As the Holy Spirit rebirths us in Christ, and in the Spirit we are baptized into the body of Christ, and through the Spirit life and gifts come. so that the image of the beast might even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. It has formed a body and given that body life, and now it forms a community. And it forms the community by means of a mark, which is taking knowingly and voluntarily. And I wonder if perhaps the mark, and, and I'm speculating here. Revelation's hard to figure out. I've mentioned that before. I'm speculating that maybe the mark of the beast parallels baptism as something that we engage in voluntarily as we submit ourselves to the Lord. And the community says, you've been baptized, and we recognize your confession of faith. In the end, then, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. I'll be spending the next 12 months on that. We don't know what the mark of the beast is. I remember a time, I'm old enough to remember when ATM cards came into existence, and there were people who were saying, ATM cards are the mark of the beast. Because it's a way to buy without money like nobody had ever had credit cards before that. Some have suggested that those ID chips that you can put in pets are children. And there are people who suggest that they be put into children because of the risk to our kids. You can identify them. But that that is the mark of the beast. You put it in the hand, you put it in the forehead, and you have to have that in order to buy. If somebody steals your wallet or somebody steals your purse, you still have that. You still have your ID. You still have access. That's the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is not about commerce. You can't buy or sell without it because you're out of the community. But the point of the mark of the beast is not to form a financial system. The point of the mark of the beast is to be identified as belonging to the Antichrist. 
That's the point of the mark. Genuine Christians aren't going to take the mark because it means swearing allegiance and promising worship to the Antichrist. I've had so many people say, well, what if we accidentally... Well, there's no accidental. It's an act of worship. It's an act of adoration and devotion and commitment to the Antichrist. No true Christian is going to offer worship to a false god of any sort. And so back to the question that I asked at the beginning. Will Antichrist succeed where Jesus failed? Jesus spent about three years in ministry, and in that time he failed to gather even a single city's entire inhabitants or population. There wasn't a town in Galilee or in Judea where every person in that town believed in him and followed him. The Antichrist quickly gains the worship and the adoration of the entire world. The Antichrist becomes the God that the world has longed for since creation. I want you to think about this. This is a God who requires no confession or repentance. This is a God who seeks to defend the world against the judgment coming from the true God. This is a God who, who reduces the world to the practical basics, commerce and pleasure. And when we get to, the, 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 uh, to Babylon the Great, in chapter 17 and 18, you'll see that commerce and pleasure are at the heart of Babylon the Great. Antichrist is going to urge the religious of the world to continue in their religious rebellion against the one true God, even while judgment falls on their heads. And he'll deceive the non-religious of the world by making the focus of religion food and pleasure, which is what people seek. It's all in vain, though. He does succeed in a way that Jesus didn't succeed, but it's a short-lived success. No matter how hard he tries, Satan will never be like the Most High God. He can pretend. He can deceive human beings like that's hard to do. He can gain the worship of the wicked, but their loyalty to him is bought and extorted. Their loyalty to him is bought and extorted. They will never freely love him as the children of God love their creator and savior. Have you ever thought about the fact that the Holy Spirit of God comes upon people in scripture and they don't blank out? They don't fall over and roll and bark like dogs. Paul even says, the spirit of the prophet is subject unto the prophet. Satan possesses. The spirit of God indwells. Satan forces. The spirit of God invites. Satan deceives so that a lie directs someone's life, the Spirit of God convicts and persuades so that the truth is learned. So Satan can gain followers by deception, but he can only keep them by threats. And nothing that he does in those final three and a half years will change his destiny or change the hope 
that we have in Christ. This is true because a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark, never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth there is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he. Lord Sabaoth, Lord of hosts, his name. From age to age, the same. And he will and must win the battle. And although this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abides. The spirit and the gifts are ours. Through him who with us sideth, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So Satan is doomed to fail. He will not deceive genuine believers. And so he gains nothing. There are no converts out of the kingdom of God into the kingdom of darkness. Not one, not ever. In killing Christians, which most of us would say is the worst he can do, he simply sends us to the one who with a gentle hand wipes away every tear. And he loses access to us forever. Even if he persuades us to sin, our sin has been satisfied by the cross of Christ. And I want you to think about this. Those who are in Christ, their names have been in writing in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, and they've been in writing in that book since before creation. Satan has no access to that book. Why would we ever think that he knows what's in that book, that he knows who is in that book? He's operating blindly. He can't destroy our faith because it is a gift of God, not a one-time gift, but a constant infusion from the Spirit of God. It's going to be terrible in those last days. The saints on the earth are going to be taken captive and they're going to be put to the sword, but they will not renounce Christ because God is faithful. He will strengthen them to endure and he will preserve them for an eternal weight of glory through that momentary light affliction. This is all I ask of you. If he can do that for his children in the worst of times, can he do something for us today? Can he strengthen us today? Can he preserve us today? Can he hold us in his gentle hand today? Can he continue to grant us that constant infusion of faith that we can't explain? We don't know where it comes from. Why do I believe? I don't know. I would arm wrestle just about anybody in this room for having done less than anybody else to deserve the faith that I have. 
he gives us hope. So he can do for us what he will do for them. And he does do for us what he does for them. He strengthens our faith. He strengthens our hearts so that we don't lose hope. So here is the call for the endurance and faith of the saints. He will not let you go. So cling to him. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the defeat of Satan, which is sure and absolute. We thank you, Lord, that nothing he does is going to succeed against your kingdom. Lord, we, we grieve for those that we know and love who are in rebellion against you. And we ask, Lord, for the sake of your mercy to save them, to convict them of their sin, to cause them to hunger for eternal life. Bring them as you brought each and every one of us into your kingdom, by your grace, through your mercy, by faith in Jesus Christ. Make us instruments of the gospel. Let it flourish in our hearts and let it fill our mouths. And Lord, as we face tomorrow or the day after or the the month to come, and we see the difficulties and we sweat under the burdens and the weight, would you remind us that you preserve us, that because of your love we endure You constantly infuse us with faith so that we are protected. We thank you again for your love. We ask your blessing upon those who are not with us this morning. We look forward to seeing them. And Lord, we lift our hearts to you. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.